This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. All right, uh, let's get it over with. <laughs> on the count of three, I, I don't know what you're, what, you, what you're feeling right now. On the count of three, we're all going to say sex together. Out loud, if the person next to you doesn't say it, raise your hand. We'll make them come up here and stand next to me the whole time. But, uh, all right, so just here we go. One, two, three, sex. Nobody died, right? Nobody, like, a little embarrassed maybe. Look, I, I, I get that this is, can be awkward and uncomfortable. Um, and it just the only thing I would ask is that if you're uncomfortable sitting there, just sympathize with me standing here. And more than that, sympathize with my wife sitting here. Um, you know, our, our goal in this series is not to just kind of talk about it because, hey, it's, it's a shocking topic. We're not looking for shock value. We're not looking for, uh, you know, trying to be a little edgier than some other church down the road. But really, it's motivated by this idea that God has a plan for sex and God has a plan for everything. And when we live in God's plan, we thrive and when we live outside of God's plan, we suffer. And so we're going to talk about it each week. Uh, the other reason we're going to talk about it is because we really feel like the church should speak about the things that our culture screams about. And our culture screams all sorts of messages to us about sex. We are bombarded every day uh, trying to sell us things, trying to tell us things, trying to give us a picture of what this should look like. And most of the time, uh, our culture either gives us half a truth or a complete lie. And so what we're going to do over the next couple weeks is just really try to explore what is God's plan, how do we live in that plan, and, and how does that then change our relationships with each other and change our relationships with the world around us? So um, again, I, I, I understand though, especially because we do have our seventh graders, uh, eighth graders in here with us. And so parents, if you get uncomfortable at any time, like feel free to, to drag your kid out. That won't be embarrassing to them at all, I'm sure. But um, you know, if not that, feel free to, to I'm giving you permission to, to take off church the next couple weeks or serve in the, the kids' rooms or, or something like that, and we'll see in May. But um, kind of the, the frame I'm using for this, the lens I'm running all of this through is uh, Angie and I have three kids, and our oldest will be in here with us in about a year and a half. And so uh, this morning, I am happy that my parents don't go here, my grandparents don't go here, uh, my kids aren't in here. Like that, That's all helpful for me today. But I'm also trying to run everything, all the stuff we're going to talk about through that filter of, if my kids were in here, would I still say this? And so uh, we're, we're really just trying to figure out what the scriptures say, stay rooted in those, um, and not push beyond it. You know, there, there was a day when churches didn't really talk about sex at all. I think that day is long gone. And I think if anything, the challenge the church faces now is to not become so uh, crass in our discussions of sex that it loses all of its holiness and all of its, its kind of value that God has assigned to it. And so that's, that's the approach we're taking. So, so just kind of everything in, in front of you, um, I have, like Amy said, I, I took my outline to all of our pastoral staff on Wednesday and Thursday. I said, hey, read through all of this. And, and tell me what you think. Tell me if we're, you know, if we're going too far or not far enough and got their feedback. Gave it to Angie as well and said, hey, read through this. Let me know what you think. And she said, no, everything looks good. It's fine. I said, so there's nothing in there that's going to get me in trouble. She said, it's never your outline that gets you in trouble. 
Um, and so, uh, which, which again made me realize that it's true. Like when I get uncomfortable, I make jokes and, uh, I'm, I'm going to be uncomfortable for a month. So, uh, we'll just, we'll see what happens, but I'm going to do my best, uh, to stay in the scriptures and to let them speak to us about God's plan for sex. And so we're going to take the next four weeks. The first week today, we're going to talk about how God has designed a beautiful picture for sex. And that when we live within that, it brings life to us. Next week, we're going to talk about what happens when we distort that picture. When we choose to live outside of God's lines for sex, what does it do to us? What does it do to the world around us? What does it do to our relationships? And so we'll explore a lot of things there in our culture, especially next week. The third week, we're going to talk about a restored picture. We're going to examine some, some stories from the Bible of people who were engaged um, in activities that were outside of God's lines for sex and see how Jesus comes to restore and to renew even when we find ourselves outside of those lines. And then the fourth week, we're going to talk about explaining the picture. And what we're really going to focus on there is uh, two aspects. One is how do we as Christians engage in conversations with our culture about sex and then the second part of that is going to be a little bit more practical, and uh, it's going to be how do we talk to our kids about sex? And, you know, from young kids to teenagers to young adults to our married children, how do we engage in these conversations with them? And so that's kind of the outline we're going to follow. But today we're going to start uh, with just this beautiful picture, God's plan for sex. And to do that, we're going to look at two passages. First, we'll start in Genesis chapter 2, where we see God's plan for humanity, and we see the introduction of God's plan for sex. And then we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 7, where he tells us uh, more specifically about God's intention, God's design for sex. So Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll start. The reason we're starting there is because we can't really talk about God's plan for sex without talking about God's plan for humanity. You know, and so in Genesis 2 is the story of the creation of man. And it says in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The primary reason that we're appealing to God's plan for sex is because we believe we are all made in the image of God. And if we are made in his image, if we are the result of his intention, then he has a purpose and a plan for every part of our lives. And that includes sex. So, so we start rooted in this idea that sex matters because we are made in the image of God. You know, one of the, the problems that our culture has is that we try to separate sex from the rest of our life. And we, we think it's this separate, just physical thing over here that doesn't affect what we do over here in our relationships or in our relationship with the Lord or any other thing. We just think it's this detached thing from us. And any time we detach sexuality from our spirituality, anytime we, re we detach sexuality from the relationship that God intends it to be experienced in, we do a lot of damage to ourselves and to the world around us. So Genesis reminds us we are made in the image of God. And then as it goes on to tell the story, it says in verse 18 that the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now, so, so God creates man. He sees that man is alone. He declares it's not good. And so he creates woman to come alongside of him. And he's painting this picture for us that men and women were meant to be together. They were meant to complement one another. In some sense, they were meant to uh, complete each other, to, to walk together in life. I think there's a, a couple lessons that we learn here from the creation story, especially about sex. And the first is that God is pro-sex. This was his idea. This was his intention. You know, it's, that line is in there from the very beginning of, of, you know, Adam looks at Eve and he launches into this love song. And if there's any doubt if God is pro-sex, just remember the creation story includes a naked man singing a song to a naked woman and saying basically, good job. This is awesome. This is good. Thank you, Lord. This is part of me. She, I am part of her. We are meant to be together. It's, it's this, I mean, he just kind of bursts out in song when he sees her. And so we see like, this is not only God's plan, but it's a, it's a good plan. It's a plan that does something inside of us, that awakens something inside of us. The second thing we see is that God designed sex to be exclusive. Adam sees Eve and he declares, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The, the, the writer of Genesis then kind of sums it up for us and says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And it carries with it this idea that sex is, is not only a gift from God, but it's supposed to be a motivator for us to live in the plan God has for us. And then this, I think, is important for us to understand that, that the sexual desire we all have, that sex drive, is something God has put inside of us. That's not the result of sin. That's not the result of brokenness. But instead, it's something God gives us to inspire us to leave our families of origin, to pursue a spouse, and to be united with them. This creation story also tells us that sex is designed to be exclusive. You know, it says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That this is a, a unique gift for a unique relationship. And they are to become one flesh, it says. And, and sex then becomes this really essential part of marriage because it binds a man to a woman in a way that he is bound to no one else in the world. And so the, the creation story paints this really beautiful picture, and it's supposed to be kind of the prototype by which we see our own relationships with the opposite sex, where we see this is how God made me, these are the desires he's given me, and I am supposed to act in accordance with him. Now, like all things, sin has corrupted that entire process, and it's perverted our desires, and it's turned our hearts away, and it's made us not desire that long-term, uh, one-person-for-all-of-life relationship. But, but all of that does not detract from God's original design. And God's original design is for one man, one woman, to be brought together in an exclusive, loving relationship, and that sex plays an integral part of that process. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul starts to talk a little bit more about what this looks like. In 1 Corinthians 6, he lays out what happens when we live outside of God's plan for sex. And we're going to look at that next week. In 1 Corinthians 7, he gives us the more positive side. And he says, this is the way God designed sex. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll start in verse 1. Paul writes, now for the matter you wrote about. 
It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. First, we see God designed sex, and and we can't ignore it. The the Corinthian church apparently had sent questions to Paul. Most likely, they'd sent a letter to him. And and in 1 Corinthians, he answers various ones of these, these questions they had. And one of the questions that they had was, is it okay for a man to have sex with a woman? And the reason they were asking it is there was a segment of people in the the Corinthian church who were advocating for this idea of a a complete separation between the physical and the spiritual. And they believed that to be spiritually pure, you must reject all forms of not only physical sin, but physical pleasure as well, because a pursuit of pleasure could easily lead you into sin. And the best way to make sure you don't do that is just to not do it. And so they write to Paul and say, is this true? Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? And Paul uh, basically destroys their argument in the few verses we're going to look at. Um, And and he starts off by just acknowledging that that there is this tension in the world. That, That sometimes things we, for some reason, we think that things are good and pleasurable cannot be part of following Jesus. But instead, what we're reminded of from the creation story and what Paul's going to remind us of here is, look, sex is part of God's plan for us. And so Paul will begin to reject this line of thinking entirely. And and he rejects it specifically in the context of a marriage relationship. His teaching is going to remind us that in the scriptures, they really don't have any frame of reference for a sexless marriage. Yeah, I mean, the, the scriptures again and again, they, they affirm, they acknowledge, they lift up the value and the, the priority of sex in marriage. And if you don't believe me, you can go home later and read the Song of Solomon out loud. And you will hear the high value that the scriptures place on married love and, and the expression of that in a physical way. Paul, as he continues to write through 1 Corinthians 7, he expounds on God's design for us. And the first thing he tells us is that God designed sex to be exclusive. The Corinthians are writing saying, is it true that we, men should not have sex with women? Women should not have sex with men. And Paul's response is, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So he not only says, no, that's not true, but he says, you should have sex. And here are the direct lines in which that should occur. The boundary is marriage. This is, you know, this idea of coloring inside the lines. That's where it's coming from, that God has a beautiful plan, but it's only beautiful as we stay within his framework for it. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand here is the exclusive nature of sex. You know, sex doesn't derive its power in a, in a marriage relationship from its pleasure, but from its exclusivity. It is, it is the one area that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt there is no one else in the world with whom I share this experience or with whom my spouse shares this experience. It's what makes our relationship completely and totally unique. If sex is given for oneness, then for two people to become one, it means they can't be joining themselves to all of these other people or all of these other things out here. It must be exclusively devoted to one person. Tim Keller is a a pastor in New York City and writing and, and speaking about this passage. He says that what Paul is teaching us here is that sex in marriage is in some way a continual renewal and reminder of the marriage covenant. It's a husband and a wife declaring to each other that they have a whole life commitment to one another. 
See, and, and this is where, again, we get off base. Because if we think sex is just for pleasure, then we can go down some very dark and selfish avenues. But if sex is for exclusiveness, it keeps us in the lane that God designed for it to be experienced. We'll talk about this more next week, but it's, it's fascinating and, and, and tragic to see how much human suffering in our world is directly related to our choice to step outside of God's plan for sex. I mean, you, you think about it. You think of so many financial issues, so many relational issues, so many marriage issues, so many uh, parent-child issues, all of the, the human trafficking concern, all of the sex addiction, all of the pornography, all of the child abuse, all of the rape, all of the violence, all of these things are rooted in an individual's choice to step out of God's plan for sex. And so many of those problems would be eliminated if we would just live within the boundaries that he's given to us. You see, anytime we pursue sexual pleasure outside of an exclusive marriage relationship, it leads to death and it leads to destruction. And and not only for the person participating in it, but for their friends, for their family, for the, the environments in which they live. See, the solution, though, isn't to abandon sex. That's what the Corinthians were trying to do. They were saying, if sex is so bad, if it leads to so much harm, maybe it's best if we just don't do that at all anymore. If we just all make an agreement, let's not do that again, then maybe we'll be better people, our world would be a better place. But Paul rejects that. What he's telling him is, look, the the solution is not to abandon sex. The solution is to embrace God's plan for sex to live inside these lines. And he goes on to make it clear that God designed sex to be part of marriage in verse three. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. This idea of fulfilling your duty literally means giving back what is owed. When a husband and wife enter into marriage with each other, they are agreeing to meet one another's needs to the best of their ability and this includes your sexual needs. If you're married, the biblical expectation is that sex will be part of your relationship. And Paul makes this abundantly clear here in a few verses, but I think it's important for us to stop and consider this idea of marital duty because it implies uh, some form of frequency and it also implies some form of effort. And it also stands in contrast to the, the picture our culture and even the picture some parts of the church can paint about sex. Because they'll paint this picture of like, well, sex is always wonderful and it's always awesome and it's always candles and flowers and everything's great and kind words and all of this kind of stuff. It's, it's always, always perfect. And if it's not perfect, just don't even, don't even mess with it. But what Paul is getting at here with this idea of duty is, hey, like, man, yeah, it, it can be good. But there's also just an expectation. This is what married people do. In the same way that they live together, they pay bills together, they have sex together. There's an expectation. And I know that that idea even of, of duty can be kind of off-putting. You know, it's like, man, that's, it sounds like, you know, and especially for ladies. I know, you know, a lot of times grandma or mom or somebody has, has given you the advice at some point of like, listen, honey, it's not much fun, but you just got to do it. You know, it's just like, like the good news is you'll get a kid that you love. But uh, outside of that, just, you know, it's part of making him happy and whatever, you know, you just, 
we survived, you will too, Uh, you know, and and just really give you this positive picture of sex. And so then when you hear in the scriptures, it says each one should fulfill their marital duty. It sounds as if God is just kind of taking all the fun out of it and saying, here you go. But in the same way that in his grace, God often gives us jobs or hobbies or interests that make our heart come alive. Like when he gives us those gifts, he expects us to use it, but he also expects them to be an enjoyable process for us. And it's the same with sex. Yes, it's a duty, but God in his grace made it very pleasurable and very enjoyable, and so that makes it easier for us to pursue that. But that idea of duty, I think you can't get away from. Even in the church sometimes, I think we're guilty of painting a false picture for people. You know, I I grew up in the the youth group era of like the True Love Weights programs and all that kind of stuff. And you would do the banquets and the girls got the purity rings and guys, their parents would try to find something for them that was pure that wasn't a ring because they wouldn't wear it. And I might have got a purity knife at some point. I don't know really what that stood for. Probably a threat from my dad of I will kill you if you don't. But um, I don't know. But anyways, in that, I remember especially being at youth camp one summer, and this guy was, was talking about some of these ideas, and he was telling us, you have got to remain sexually pure, which is a true statement. And he said, if you remain sexually pure, God, you'll live in God's blessing, which was a true statement. And he said, if you will remain sexually pure, you will remain in God's blessing, and you will be uh, a better spouse to your future spouse, which was a true statement. And then he said, all of this, and he said, and the sex you have with your spouse will blow your mind every time. And uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked with who walked into marriage with that expectation only to be tragically disappointed. Because this idea of duty, part of what it also means is, hey, effort, work, showing up, get the job. You know, it's all of these things. And so it means even when it's not fireworks and awesome and everything that you were promised it would be, you don't stop because this is part of the job of being married. In the same way you never stop saying, I love you to your spouse, you never stop having sex with your spouse because this is how God designed it. It's how God intends it. Paul goes on to tell us that sex is also designed to be sacrificial. In verse four, he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, our culture's approach to sex is incredibly selfish, right? This is where pornography gets so much of its power because it, is, it turns sex into purely a, a pleasurable physical experience, and it's totally consumer-oriented. It's all about one person having their needs met with no regard for anyone else or anything else. It's just all about you and what you need and what you want in that moment. And so what Paul is getting at here is shocking to us in our culture where sex is so selfish, and it was equally shocking to his original audience. You know, when when he writes and says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, everyone who heard that in that time would have agreed. That's how their culture worked. It was a male-dominated society, and they said, yeah, of course, we know that. A wife exists to satisfy the needs of her husband, to produce children for him. She had really not much value at all in that time and in that setting. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He also follows it up and says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And, and that's where he would have got some pushback. There was, there's no frame of reference for this thinking of a husband yielding his body to his wife. 
But Paul is pushing us towards this idea that the way God designed sex is for it to be a sacrificial experience between a man and a woman where they are both giving of themselves to one another, where they are laying down their desires. They're laying down all the ways those desires have been corrupted by sin. They're laying down all the ways those those desires create tension in their relationship. They're laying all that down, and they're yielding themselves to each other. You see, oneness comes through mutual submission, through loving concern. God created sex to be sacrificial. It's always an an act in which there's an exchange, which there's giving and there's receiving, and that cannot be separated. Anytime we separate the sacrificial aspects from God's plan for sex, we turn sex into a very selfish thing, which leads us into very dark alleys. Our oneness comes through this mutual submission. And this act, Paul says, of a husband and a wife yielding their bodies to each other, it reminds us that sex is powerful because of the vulnerability that's involved with it. This process of yielding to one another physically is a reminder, like Tim Keller said, it's a a continual renewal and reminder of our marriage covenant. To love this person in a unique and powerful way, to forsake all others and love them solely. And sex reminds us of that fact. God intends for that sacrificial nature of sex to be something that binds a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Here we are reminded that God designed sex to be frequent. And this is where it gets weird if you're sitting by your mom or dad this morning. Um, and, and you can choose a better seat maybe next week. But, uh, but, but you're already here and we're already in. Uh, so we'll just, we'll just go ahead and, and plow through this and you can stare at the floor. But, um, you know, you, you might, I know, I, I, I get as, as much work as I put into this every week. I know there are a lot of times that you go home and don't remember anything I said. There are a lot of weeks I feel like I go home and don't remember anything I said. But I promise you, there is not a man in this room that's going to go home today and won't remember God designed sex to be frequent. I mean, even like I can sometimes I just like to sit here and see the discomfort on all. <laughs> Some of you guys are smiling. Your wife looks uncomfortable, you know, and, and I know it's a stereotype. You know, sometimes I get that it's the other way. Sometimes it's the wife who is looking at that and thinking, I hope he's paying attention. But for the most part, every time we talk about this particular aspect of marriage and sex, uh, it's men who stop me afterwards or talk to me later and say, thank you. And how many times? (laughs) Give me a number. You know, like what's frequent mean? It's frequent, like a frequent oil change, not all that frequent. <laughs> you know, a frequent shower, that's more what I, you know, and so there's, there's this conversation. But what's, what's really interesting to me, and, and we'll come back to that in a minute. What's really interesting here, though, is Paul cannot be more clear here on the frequency of sex in marriage. Look, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent And for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So married people are experts, especially the longer they're married, at coming up with reasons for why sex is no longer a frequent part of their marriage. We're too busy. 
we're too stressed, we're too tired, our kids are driving us nuts, you know, we're, we're, we're working opposite shifts, she's on nights, he's on days, we're, we're, doing these, we're getting pulled in a thousand different directions, we don't get to go on trips anymore. Sometimes there are deeper issues there that, that are real and that are legitimate. Sometimes sex isn't a frequent thing because someone's been unfaithful. Sometimes it's not a frequent thing because she has a, a porn problem. Sometimes it's not a frequent thing because there's some level of abuse uh, or abandonment going on in that marriage. And if, if you find yourself in any of those more serious issues this morning, my encouragement to you would be, hey, like, grab that bulletin and you see all of our emails on the bottom. And if you're a lady and you need to reach out to someone, shoot an email to Pastor Rennie or Pastor Amy, and they will hold that in confidence and they will help you find the help and healing you need. If you're a guy and it's some of those reasons, email me or Pastor Greg, and we will walk through that with you. We'll connect you with other people who can help you in that process. But my encouragement to you today is to let the weight of Paul's words fall on your marriage. Perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer. Busyness, being tired, being stressed, not feeling real connected. None of these are legitimate reasons to not have sex with your spouse. Paul says the only reason, and even then he qualifies it, except perhaps is if you're going to have a prayer meeting that you both agreed to. Now, I love to pray, and I know some of you do too. But this is the rarest exception, right? Like, don't go home and try to tell your spouse today, that's what I've been doing for the past two months. I've been praying a lot. That's why we have, like, that's not, it's not going to fly. And Paul, Paul makes it even more clear. It's not just that you want to pray. It has to be mutually agreed upon and only for a short amount of time because otherwise the expectation is if you're married, you're having sex. See, God designed sex to be part of marriage, which means God designed sex to be part of your marriage. And there are no exceptions to that. There's no exemptions from it. And he intends for it to be frequent because it binds us together. And so you, you come back to this idea of like, okay, because I know some of, some of you guys, you're still wondering like, how many times? Give me a number. I'm going to make it into a poster and I'm going to hang it in our bed. You know, like, you, you know you're, just stop. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. Uh, but here's, here's what I'll tell you. There are all kinds of studies that have been done, and, and they stick a number on this. Um, but instead of giving those to you, what I would encourage you to do is to actually talk to your spouse, you know, uh, about this specifically, of what does, what does frequent mean for us. And man, I, I just, if you're a teenager, young adult sitting with your parents, I am so sorry right now. But, but you're, you want your parents to have this conversation. Right? And one day when you're married, they're going to want you to have this conversation with your spouse. Frequency is an important thing because sex is such a powerful binding agent in a marriage. And so you can't escape it. So sit down, talk with your spouse. You guys know your stage of life. You know the struggles and strains that you're under. And talk about it. And if in your discussion you figure out, hey, we need help with this. We have deeper issues that need to be resolved. Again, reach out. We'd be happy to connect you with those resources. The last thing you see is that God designed sex to be protective. You go all the way back to verse 2, and Paul says, Since so much sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And then down in verse 5, after saying, you know, the only time you could abstain is, is perhaps for a time for prayer, he says, Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now again, the Corinthians lived in an incredibly sexual culture. 
The, the city of Corinth was known for all of these shrines and temples around town. And one of the primary forms of worship at many of those temples was to engage in temple prostitution where men would come and they would pay women to have sex as like an act of worship to that God. And so the Corinthians lived in a culture where sex was out in front of everybody, where it couldn't be avoided, where the topic was always near the top of our list. In many ways, though they were there 2,000 years ago, their society was very much like ours, where it seems like the constant message you get is, hey, it's fun, do whatever you want. It's here, it's, it's just a physical thing, it doesn't matter. You can do that and still love your wife. You can do that and still love your husband. And so what Paul is telling us here is, look, in the face of such overwhelming immorality, the best thing Christians can do is have sex with their spouse. Because God designed that to be a process that protects your relationship and that protects your heart. That the more you will turn into each other, the more you will express your love to one another, the less appealing all of these temptations out here will be. Now, we both still carry, a husband and a wife in a relationship, both still carry individual responsibility to resist those temptations. But what Paul is telling us here is one of the best ways to make sure you live in God's plan is to live in God's plan. And so if you want to live in God's plan for sexual purity as a married person, most of what that means is you are actively involved with your own spouse. Because it's inevitable. And, and I understand there, there are times when sickness and other issues come up and, and that physical aspect of your relationship is lacking. And what we trust in those moments is that where the ideal falls short, God's grace will be abundant. But for most of us, God intends for sex to be a regular part of our marriage because it's how he binds us to our spouse. And when we refuse to take advantage of one of the primary tools God has given to bind us together, we will inevitably start to drift apart. And marriages don't get healthier when you're drifting away from each other. I have a buddy who uh, was talking about this passage in his church, and he received a letter from, or a letter, an email from an 80-year-old woman in his church that week. And he saw it, and he thought, oh my goodness, what could this be? She was recently widowed, and she emailed him and, and said, uh, hey, I just wanted to tell you thanks for your message on Sunday. It was really good and encouraging. I especially appreciated how you said that sex needed to be a constant part of your marriage. Her husband had died a couple years earlier, and she said, to the very end, there were sometimes moments where sex was all that held us together. And my buddy, uh, again, it was him, so don't be mad at me. He said, after I got done throwing up in the trash can, I appreciated what she said. Because it was this idea of, hey, even when life isn't good, you just keep doing what God's told you to do. And man, husbands and wives, like, you know, it sounds kind of flippant of like, oh, just keep having sex and things will be fine, things will be better. But Sometimes it's good just to do what God told you. And what he's commanded husbands and wives is, is very clear here. Frequent sex, yielding yourselves to each other, sacrificially giving yourselves to one another, because as you submit to one another over and over and over and over again, it enables all of these other stresses in life to become more bearable. So you continue to come back together. You continue to surrender to God's plan. See, when we color inside the lines of God's plan for sex, it binds our hearts to our spouse. 
And so you don't, get, don't, you don't get married just so you can have sex, but when you are married, you do continue to do it. This oneness provides a source of strength that carries you through all of life. And when we do this in our own marriages, when we do this as a church as a whole, what it means is that when marriages are strong and healthy, when sex is embraced as a part of God's plan for us, it will lead to flourishing relationships. It will lead to flourishing individuals. It will lead to flourishing marriages. It will lead to flourishing children. We will be a flourishing church. It will contribute to the flourishing of our community. It will inspire us to not hide and be afraid to talk about this, but to engage in conversations about, look at all the ways it's gone wrong. Let me tell you about God's original plan for it. In doing so, we can be part of presenting a redemptive view of sex to our world. Lauren, if you guys want to come back, um, sometimes it's easy to finish a message and you know what song to sing. And this isn't one of those Sundays. Uh, so so here's what I, what I want to try to do every week is, is it can be easy to come to, to a day like today and you think, okay, there's, there's five things. So we go and we do those things and we'll be a better person, you know? But, but what I really want to encourage you with is God has a plan for sex. But even more than that, God has a plan for your life. And God's plan for your life has been corrupted by your sin. And it's been corrupted by the sin of the world. And God's plan for sex has been corrupted by your sin. And it's been corrupted by the sin of the world. And the only way for us to get back into his plan is to surrender our lives to him. And so the the first step every week Whatever we're talking about, the first response is always to surrender to Jesus again. It's not to determine to be a better person. It's not to say, here are my 10 action steps I'm walking away with. But it's to say, first and foremost, I will surrender to Jesus. And as we surrender to him, we trust that he leads us into God's plan. And he doesn't just lead us into it, but he makes it possible for us to live in it. It's his strength. It's his power. It's his resurrection that makes all the difference for us. And so at the the end of each service during this month, we're gonna pray together. We're gonna sing a song together that reminds us of God's plan for our life. They're gonna lead us this morning in that song we sang earlier, uh, Good, Good Father. And it's just a, a great reminder to us that we do what God has called us to because we believe he is our loving father who has created us, who sustains us, who has a plan for us, and he's making that plan possible to us. And if you'd like someone to pray with you as we, as we sing today, I'd encourage you to go out back. Now, again, this is, I know this is awkward. Um, it, but here's the thing, too, that I want to make clear. Don't just go back there if you've got problems with the stuff we've talked about today. But, you know, if you're, if you're having surgery this week, we want to pray with you. If you've got some financial issues, we want to pray with you. We want to join with you in all of those things, believing God is a good father. And it helps, too, that the more people that respond in those moments, the easier it is for people that need to specifically respond to what we're talking about today. Because otherwise, you, you know, you're afraid you walk out and everybody else is thinking, well, there goes the pervert, you know? And that's, that's not what we want. There's no shame. There's no judgment. What we want is to walk in God's plan for our life. We want to accept our role as his sons and his daughters to joyfully walk in the path that he's laid out for us. And and part of the way that he helps us do that is by bringing others alongside of us. So if you'll stand with me, I want to pray with you. And then if you'd like someone to join you in prayer further, you can head out the back doors as we sing. God, I thank you 
that you're a loving father who gives good gifts to his children. Thank you, Lord, that even when the, the ideal is lacking, your grace still comes to us and makes new life possible. This morning, I pray for hearts that are hurting. I pray that you would bring healing and hope to them. I pray for marriages that are suffering, that you would breathe your life into them. I pray for difficult conversations that will occur this week, that your grace will be abundant in them. Lord, I pray that in all things, at all times, in all ways, as we surrender to you, your kingdom will come to us and your will will be accomplished in us and through us. We thank you, Lord, that you're a good father who has made your plans abundantly clear to us and enabled us to walk in them. So we surrender our lives, every single part of our lives to you today and ask that your power would be available for us to walk in your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.